We turn to the book of Ephesians and the second chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read a portion beginning at verse number 11. So Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse number 11, we'll read down to the end of the chapter and may the Lord bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Ephesians 2 and verse number 11, let us hear the Word of God. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built it together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And the Lord will bless the reading of His own Word to our hearts. Now, I want to draw your attention to that final verse, and it says, we read it again, in whom ye also are built it together for an habitation of God through the Spirit, and it's especially the phrase, an habitation of God, that I want to draw to your attention in this message today and open it up to you by the Lord's help. In the New Testament, there is a certain Greek word used on two occasions, a word that signifies a house or a dwelling place. The word is found, for example, in Jude, verse 6, with reference to heaven as the dwelling place of angels. It's also employed in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 2, where Paul describes what he calls our house, which is from heaven. In that manner, he writes of the abode of Christians, the believer's souls, specifically after death, has come. During this earthly life, the physical body is the dwelling place or the home of the soul. But when the Christian's body succumbs to death, there is another abode for the soul. It is this house or this dwelling place that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5, that God provides for 
believers' souls from that time when they die right on through until the resurrection of the body at the Lord's return. Now, in our text, Ephesians 2, 22, in that phrase, habitation of God, this same word is used, but it's used here in a strengthened form. And that stronger form of the word is used in only this place and one other place. It's found in Revelation 18, verse 2, a very interesting verse, where John writes of Babylon as the habitation of devils or demons, as it could also be read. The stronger word signifies, or the stronger form of the word signifies the concept of permanency in relation to a habitation. And we find, therefore, in Revelation 18, verse 2, that John refers to the the evil system of Babylon being permanently indwelt by demons. Obviously, in the sense of those demons controlling and also dominating what the Bible refers to there as Babylon or Babylonianism, the whole system of Babylonianism is under the domination of the demons who dwell in that system. That's what the Word of God says, and they are there permanently right through the whole course of time. Here in Ephesians 2.22, we have this word again, the stronger form of it, but it's used here in a much more pleasant context. That is, with regard to God's permanent dwelling place throughout the course of time, and that is the hearts, the lives, the souls of His people. As He builds His church in, his, in this world, His church is His habitation, His dwelling place throughout the ages. Now, the intention of the Lord, as we think about these words and understand them, is to have His people understand that His dwelling place, His habitation, is truly their hearts. That's something, that's a concept that we might not really focus on as often as we should or as closely as we should, and therefore, in a sense, it may be something mysterious to our minds and to our souls. But this is what the Bible says here, that we are the habitation of God. God is living in His people, in their hearts, in their lives, in their souls. Now, in the Old Testament, frequently, the Lord speaks of uh, dwelling among or dwelling within His people. Now, if you go to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation again, you find the ultimate outcome of that concept. In Revelation 7, verse 15, it says this, He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Or Revelation 21, verse 5, that verse brings this truth to a glorious climax. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And so there in the book of Revelation, you find, as I say, the climax of what actually happens throughout time. God comes to dwell in the hearts of all those whom He saves. We are His habitation. We are His dwelling place, And that has its ultimate outcome in glory itself when the Lord will dwell with His people and reside among them right through uh, all the ages 
that stretch away throughout eternity. Now, our text reflects this truth of the Lord's purpose to dwell with His people. And so as the Lord builds His church, as I said, through the course of time, it is His permanent dwelling place. That is, us, those who know Him, those who are saved. He lives in us. He lives in every one of us. It's a great uh, combination of individuals brought together into one conglomerate, one body, and they are called the habitation of God. It deserves deep meditation, that thought, as I've already intimated. It's something that we should want to grasp in terms of its meaning, its, its sense, what it says to us, and especially its application to our hearts. What is it to have God dwelling in us? What is it to be part of His habitation? We should think deeply about that. Now, the Lord actually lives in His people. And that's a fact. That's what the words mean. And that should thrill your soul. That should fill your heart with gladness. Whenever Paul was preaching on Mars Hill, he made this incisive statement. God, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now, while those words are primarily a statement of God's omnipresence, in the sense that He cannot be contained in one building or one particular place, yet at the same time those words have a bearing on what our text teaches. God cannot be contained in physical temples, and yet at the same time He condescends to live in the hearts of His people. And what a statement this is, therefore, the habitation of God. Ye also are built it together, our text says, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And what I want to do, therefore, today is look at these words, develop what the meaning of them is, and have you and I today consider some details about this fact, that God's people are His habitation now and forever. That's it. We are God's habitation now and forever. I want, first of all, to look at the people. We need to do that because it's people who are in view in this statement, members of humanity, male and female. They're being addressed. It's not angelic beings who are in view here. It is human beings. But note what is said of them in the opening words of this text. Ye also are built together for an habitation of God. Now, taking those words, build it together, that's the translation of just one word, and it literally reads this way, ye are being built together. Ye are being built together. So we go way back in time, don't we? Because it takes in all time, from the time man fell, from the moment that he sinned against God, and then God in His grace began to save and from that moment onwards right down until now, and on through until the Lord comes when the last soul will be saved. This is going on. We are being built. We are being built, it says. It's present continuous work that the Lord is doing. We are being built together for an habitation of God. So all believers from all nations and from all time are by the power of the Holy Spirit being formed into one grand spiritual edifice in which God dwells. 
The focus in the language is on the spiritual unity of all true believers. Notice a, a vital phrase again at the head of our text, verse 22. In whom, notice that, in whom, that's in Christ, ye are being built together. And so, that's so important. There's our union with the Lord Jesus. And we'll come back to these things a little later about that matter of union with Him and the place that He holds in all this. But it's in Christ. It means that all true Christians are united with Jesus Christ, and the consequence is that they are united with each other. In Christ we are being built together. It's not without Christ. It can't happen without Christ. It must take place, therefore, when we're joined to the Lord Jesus, that we're then joined to our brethren and our sisters in a glorious, spiritual, blessed union to be the habitation of God. One single entity is what uh, Paul writes about here, who are being built together through their union with the Lord Jesus to become the habitation of God. Now, there are certain matters in this whole context, this whole chapter actually, that have to do with all this, that actually reveal who these people are, these people of God's habitation. We've seen something here in these remarks that have made us enter into this point, united with Christ, joined together. But there's more about them. And you should want to know what the Bible has to say about you. If you're a true Christian, you will want to know what does the Lord say about me with regard to my spiritual position or with regard to this specifically being the habitation of God? Who exactly am I? Ask yourself that question. I'll try to answer it for you. They are a regenerated people. See, from verse 1 to verse 10 of Ephesians 2, you have really the first half, the first section of this marvelous chapter. And it's all about our regeneration, our new birth. In fact, those those ten verses fall into two parts. There is our previous natural state, sinful state, fallen state, in verses 1 to 3, what we were like prior to our regeneration. If you look at the first three verses, you will see that very well-known verses where, where Paul writes about being quickened, we who were dead in trespasses and in sins and so on. Oh, there's, there are verses that are telling you what you used to be and what you formerly were like before God did a work through regeneration in your heart. And I can't go into this in detail today. I simply be analyzing this for you and leaving you to think and pray over it. But in those first three verses, we have our spiritual deadness. We have our spiritual direction. We walked according to the course of this world. We have our spiritual domination. We were subject, as it says there in verse 2, to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. There is our spiritual domination. We have our spiritual depravity, and we have our spiritual deservance, because we were children of wrath, even as others. There are five details that I've just gone over. And that's what we were in our previous natural state. And the picture there in verses 1 to 3 is of complete unworthiness. A situation where we were fit only for eternal ruin. 
and we were in that going in that direction, and that's where we would end up. But for the fact that God steps in and He does something to regenerate us. Now, I cannot stay any longer with verses 1 to 3, but note them. And my dear friend, go home today and get down before God and think upon what you used to be. And then rejoice in what God has done for you. Their former, their previous natural state, verses 1 to 3. But then verses 4 to 7, you've got their present new state because it's all new. Notice how verse 4 begins, but God, and Bible commentators and even we who are preachers, uh, we love to stress that kind of thing because it always signifies a contrast, but God. Then it goes on from there to unfold this new state that is described in verse after verse right down to verse 10, what we become through the new birth, through regeneration. And you have all the clauses that Paul uses, all the little statements about the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We are enlivened. It says in verse 4, God who is rich in mercy for His great love with He loved us when we were dead in sins hath quickened us. There's the enlivening. The word quicken simply means to make alive. It means to save you out of the deadness, to bring you out of that awful state that you were formerly in. There is this enlivening. And then there's also an elevation. Because it says in verse 6, raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. You may look at that with amazement, and you should. How does it, how is it to be understood? Raised us up, made us sit together in heaven with Christ. Lord, I'm still in the earth, you might say. Preacher, what do you mean? Now, this is an elevation. It's this, my friend, in the legal understanding of these words. You have been lifted out of your former state, joined to Christ, so that now in the sight of God, you are as good in heaven with Christ. That's what it means. Such is your union with Christ that legally you have been elevated out of a morass of sin and depravity and condemnation to the level where you are actually viewed in Christ by Almighty God. And therefore, He's in the heavens. That means we are in the heavens in the mind of God, viewed by Him in that way. Also enriched. It talks in verse 7 about the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It also shows here we are endowed. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works. And we're also enabled, verse 10 goes on to say, that we should walk in them. I try to sum it up for you. I try to show you, friend, what you formerly were, what you now are. This is regeneration. In other words, how can God inhabit a filthy, rotten Wicked sinner, depraved, on the road to hell, deserving nothing but damnation. How can he take that person and make that individual his dwelling place? And here's the answer, the new birth. The miracle of the new birth. The people of God's habitation are a people who through 
regeneration are changed into the image of God. In other words, those whom God inhabits are like the one who inhabits them. And they're becoming more like Him. Oh, the wonder of it. That God would take us, regenerate us, renew us, call it what you will, give us the new birth, and then dwell in us. And actually that's what's going on. The God who inhabits us is making us like Him who inhabits us. A regenerated people. Quickly, they are a redeemed people. That's what you have from verse 11 through to verse number 13. Verses 11 and 12 present, the, again, the former state of being excluded from the company of God's people. Paul here, remember, as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, he's writing to people who were mostly heathen, mostly pagan in background. And actually, my friend, most of them were slaves. I mean physically so as well as morally slaves to their lusts and their, and their uncleanness. These Ephesian people, they were slaves in their past. They were lost completely. They had nothing to do with the, as it puts it there in verse 11 and in verse 12, they had nothing to do with the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God. They were without Christ. And then look at verse 13. Here's where it comes to a climax. And again, you've got the word that really signals it. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by His blood. And so here is a, a picture, here's a presentation in a very clear way of the fact that those whom God inhabits not only are regenerate people, they are redeemed people. Again, he shows you, you were cut off from God, cut off from His people, cut off from all the privileges of the sons of God, and then suddenly made nigh by the blood of the Lamb. And so lost sinners are excluded from all this, they are outside the pale of God's people. They don't belong to God's habitation. They are, as it says in verses 11 and 12, they are aliens, they are strangers, they are cut off, and yet wonderfully through redemption they are brought nigh, brought nigh unto the living God who then enters into them to live in them. Let me tell you something. God does not live in an unregenerate heart. And God does not live in a heart that's not washed in the blood. It's as plain as that. What's as important as that? And folk need to get a hold of that. God does not dwell with those who are without the new birth, regeneration. Nor does He dwell in those who are not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I go a little farther. These people of God's habitation not only are regenerated and redeemed, but they are reconciled. Look at verse 14. And he says, For He is our peace, that is the Lord Jesus, who hath made both one. I just want to stop there very briefly and explain that, who hath made both one. And sometimes Christians think, that means God and the sinner. And no, it doesn't. The word both here is a reference to Jew and Gentile. And so that's what it's all about. 
uh, in this part of the verse, or this part of the, to the, of the chapter to a great degree. So notice that every time Paul uses the word both here, or two, or something like that, he's talking about two sets of people, Jews and Gentiles. But here they are, they're brought not only together to one another, because my friend, that's the way it is. There's only one church, I mean one body of redeemed people, and it is, it is made up of those from the Jewish nation whom God is saving, for thank God He is still saving Jews, and He'll save even more, let me tell you, before the end of time. That's true. And then it's also made up of those from the Gentile nations. In God's reckoning of nations, this is how He does it. Jews, Gentiles. Jews, one nation, Gentiles, the rest of the nations. Now, some people don't like that, but that's what the Bible teaches. And they are brought together into one body. They are reconciled, the one with the other, through grace. But the vital thing is that the reconciliation here has to do with both those peoples, Jews and Gentiles, being brought into this whole new reconciled relationship with Almighty God. Now, the word reconcile is used here in uh, verse 16, is it? It says that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross. Again, the death of our Lord, the suffering of our Savior. The word reconcile in the New Testament is a very important word. It means an exchange of money, literally. And what it means is you've got two parties who are at enmity. And as far as, far as this whole Subject today is concerned, God dwelling in people. The two parties are God and those people. And you see, sin made off the enemies of God, and sin caused God to be completely and utterly displeased with us. So there has to be a reconciliation. And so this is what we find. And the word reconcile uh, it's simply, as I say, it means an exchange of money, but the thought is of two parties at enmity settling their differences. And of course, we hear about that all the time. We've got to settle our differences. We've got to love this, that, and the other person, etc. That's the great chat down through the media in these days. But in the Bible, it's different. Because among men, well, everybody has to give a bit. So they say, when it comes to reconciling people. You give way, I'll give way, and we'll get together. That's not what the Bible teaches about God and men. God is the one who makes all the payment. We pay nothing. You know why? Because we have nothing to give. Nothing at all. That's the meaning of the word reconcile or reconciliation in the New Testament. One of the parties only pays the balance owed. And that is, of course, God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that basis, a new relationship is formed because thereby that payment that Christ makes, all due to God is paid, all due to His holy law is paid, all that we owe God and the law because of our sin, it's all paid by Jesus Christ. And that's why it keeps talking about Christ in these verses in the context of peace. Look quickly and you will see this. In every section here, there's usually four or five things that have to do with the line of thought in each section. And in this section, the whole thought is about peace, reconciliation. So in verse 14, you've got the Prince of Peace. 
He is our peace. Do you remember what Isaiah 9, 6 says? His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Why is Christ called the Prince of Peace? Because Christ has secured peace, obtained peace, and He administers or applies that peace in His own sovereign grace to the hearts and lives of sinners. So He is our peace, as it says in verse 14. Then look at verse 15. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make Himself of twain, there it is again, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. There's the provision of peace. That He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And then you go on down to verse 17, and you've got the preaching of peace. Verse 17 says, And came and preached peace. That's a remarkable verse because that's referring to Christ. It says, Came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. Those afar off, the Gentiles, those who were nigh in the sense they had a knowledge of God, that's the Jew. They had the Bible, the Old Testament, that's the Jew. But anyhow, Christ came and preached peace. When did Christ go to Ephesus? Can anybody tell me this morning if I had a quiz here, where in the New Testament do you read of the Lord Jesus ever being in Ephesus? And you might say nowhere. That's right. As far as his physical presence is concerned. But this verse tells me he went to Ephesus to preach peace. How? Through Paul the ambassador of Jesus Christ, sent by Jesus Christ. And therefore, you've got the preaching of peace and you've got the product of peace. In verse number 18, for through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. There's the product of peace. What is it? We can draw nigh to God. We're no longer cut off. We're reconciled to Him. We're redeemed from our sin. We're regenerated out of our wickedness. And therefore, we can come nigh to God and draw near to our Heavenly Father. There you have the people whom God inhabits, a people regenerated, redeemed, and reconciled. Let me ask you the question, therefore, is this true of you? Are you regenerated? Are you born again? Are you redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Are you reconciled to God? If not, God does not dwell in you. You may have all other kinds of religious characteristics, and many people do, and you may think that they're enough, but they're not enough. You may think that they have value, but they have none. You may feel that they will gain you merit with God, but they won't. This is how there is a people in whom God dwells or whom God inhabits. It's a regenerated, redeemed, reconciled people. And the question is, are you one of them? It takes me on now to look quickly at the principles of God's habitation. I refer to, I actually refer now, and I want you to get a hold of this, I refer now to the principles that are believed by those whom God inhabits as His dwelling place. 
the principles of God's habitation. God's habitation is His people. It's referring to a body of people. Now, what do those people believe? Well, certainly we'll believe what I've already said. But I come now to more specific matters, because as I looked at this passage, I find that Paul introduces a number of these principles of divine truth, and they encapsulate and they present the mind of God with regard to how anybody can be regarded as being in his habitation or belonging to that company who, whom God inhabits. And these principles are not of human origin. I, must want, I want to say that immediately. They're not of human origin. They are principles that are divinely revealed in the book. Let me tell you, my friend, they are vitally important principles. I want you to see them. And the significant point is that these principles that I'm going to mention now are joyfully espoused. And even more than that, they are defended by the people who comprise the habitation of God. What are the principles of God's habitation? What do true Christians believe? put it in that way. What do they actually believe? They believe in the doctrine of the sole authority of Scripture. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers, foreigners, fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God. So he's summing up now. He says, Listen, I've told you what you used to be, and you were aliens, you were strangers, you were foreigners, but now you're no longer that. We've covered that. A regenerated, redeemed, reconciled people. And he says, and are built upon the foundation. And note this, of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Actually, the word household there in, uh, in, in these verses, verse number 19, the household of faith, household of God, that's essentially the same word as the word habitation in verse 22. Just say that in passing. So you could read it that way uh, in verse 19, fellow citizens with the saints and of the habitation of God. So it's basically the same word. But the point is, there are principles, there's a, there's a principle here in these verses of the sole authority of the Word of God. We see it in those terms in verse 20 built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're trusting in Peter and Paul along with Christ? I don't think so. I don't think you believe that. I hope you don't. What it is is this. It's what Christ has revealed in the New Testament through his apostles and prophets, that he is the chief cornerstone of the entire edifice that God inhabits, that is, the people whom he dwells in. In other words, here is what they believe, the sole authority of the Word of God. The reference there is to the scriptural teaching, the doctrinal foundation delivered by the apostles as the agents of Christ, and the writers of the New Testament. That's what's meant. And their whole focus was this. Christ is the chief cornerstone. Yes, what we are writing down, the Scriptures of the New, which are, of course, parallel with the Scriptures of the Old, this is 
something that provides a foundation, but concerning that foundation, Christ is everything. And my friend, there you have a wonderful statement. This central point, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of all that God has revealed with regard to how people are saved, with regard to who those are, whom He dwells in. They are a people who receive this and believe this without question. It's something like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. How do we know all this? Because of the Bible, the Scriptures, the sole authority of Scripture. You see, God is self-revealing. Isn't that right? Did we ask God to reveal Himself to us? No. Was there ever a time in this world when a fallen sinner said, Lord, I want to know you. Please write the Bible for me. And I put it very simplistically. What I want to get across to you today. There never has been a time like that. All men were in darkness. All men loved their sin. All men had fallen. All men had gone astray. And if God had done what you and I and the whole human race deserves, He would have left us there on the road that we were already traveling, the road to hell. But He didn't. He spoke. He revealed Himself. He revealed His Son. He revealed the only way in which divine justice can be satisfied, and that's on the basis of the atonement, etc., and that's what I mean by the sole authority of Scripture. I say to you today from this pulpit, God is the God of truth. He abhors deviation from that truth. He will not dwell with those who reject the truth that He has revealed. He won't. Because those who reject His truth are insulting Him. He will not dwell with them. So there's the doctrine of the sole authority of Scripture. There's the doctrine of the Trinity in these verses. Look again at verse 18, and this is obviously just a, a scant glance here because I can't go into the depths of this. But look at verse 18. And in that verse, there's a statement about believers approaching God to meet with Him, to worship Him. And in this verse, there are three persons, three divine persons distinguished, there is God the Father in His majesty, there is God the Son in His mediation, and there's God the Spirit in His ministry. They're all in verse 18. In other words, what we're reading here is what you find throughout the Scriptures in so many places. The Father, that title that belongs to the first person of the Godhead, the Father in Scripture always stands as the first person in that He represents the Godhead. The second Son, the Son, the second person, He stands in Scripture as the one through whom we draw near to a holy God. And the Spirit as the third person, He motivates us, He draws us to engage in worship. And so, in this verse, you've got three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They are distinct persons. And we're finding in this wonderful way 
that they are the three persons of the Godhead. And here's the remarkable thing. Only one of those three persons stepped into time and history in order to save us, Jesus Christ. Not the Father, not the Spirit. They didn't take our humanity. Christ took our humanity. And therefore, this is the vital and the fundamental gospel truth of the doctrine of the Trinity. Without the Trinity, there's no salvation. And you know, that doctrine has been repudiated and rejected by all kinds of bodies down through time, over and over again. And I'm saying to you today, reject the doctrine of the Trinity and you will go to hell. It's as plain as that. You will go to hell. Because to reject the Trinity is to blaspheme in the worst possible manner. To blaspheme the three persons who are the same in the substance, equal in power and in glory, who work together for our salvation. Any church body, any individual, all the cults, they all reject the Trinity. All who adhere to those systems will perish because God does not dwell in them. And He won't dwell in them. There's the doctrine of grace in this passage. Look at verse 5, verse 8. Twice you have the words, by grace you are saved. In verse number 7, you've got the marvelous statement, the exceeding riches of His grace. Oh, those verses are really focusing our minds in on grace. What is grace? I know that the common interpretation or the common uh, definition of grace is, is this. It's the undeserved favor of God, and that is true insofar as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. The real definition, the true definition of grace is, properly defined this way, the undeserved favor of God bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the very opposite, namely God's wrath. And whenever you read about the grace of God in the Bible, you keep in mind that's exactly what it means. By grace you're saved. It's underlining that point of truth that there was nothing in us to motivate God to save us. No work that we do, no thought that we think, etc., etc., no religious performance, nothing, 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 my friend would have moved God to save us, but in His grace alone He chose to save guilty sinners. There's the doctrine of grace here. And there's the doctrine of Christ's soul mediation. In verse 13 again, Now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. There's Christ the mediator. There's the truth of the definite atonement in that verse. The result of which is that sinners previously cut off from God through sin are accepted by Him. Here is a principle of the gospel that is hated by all false religion. That the only way to be saved is through Christ. It is exclusive. Yes, yes, it is. And necessarily so. 
Because nothing else can satisfy the justice of God but the blood of God's dear Son. Nothing else but the blood and the mediation of our Savior. And that's why false religion hates this principle of truth. Because they want to have a place in their own salvation. But there's no other way to approach God to become His habitation but through Christ alone. And so the solemn conclusion is that those who reject these principles that I've mentioned here, that Paul lays down, they are not part of God's habitation. Rather, they cannot be when they espouse the lies of anti-Christianity. Because anti-Christianity is against every one of these principles, and many, many more, the sole authority of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of the sole mediation of Christ. You see, we live in a day when ecumenism is very much at work, and they're still talking about building the one world church and coming together as one body on this earth. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are. So now it's all embracing. It's not apostate Protestant churches anymore. It's not even the church of Rome anymore. It's heathen religions. It's Islam. It's everything under the sun. They're all coming together to form this so-called one world church. Do you know, I told this to the folk in the Bible class today, I'm going to say it again, but three weeks ago, something like that, the church leaders here in Northern Ireland were all in Rome. The Presbyterian moderator, the Methodist uh, president, the Church of Ireland archbishop, plus the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Armagh, all in Rome holding an ecumenical service at the instigation of the Pope. You're not going to Rome without his approval. Held an ecumenical service to celebrate the Good Friday Agreement. Now, leaving aside what you think of the Good Friday Agreement, why, why did that happen? Because you have a body of men there who have rejected this book, who believe that there are many ways to God. I don't care what they say or what they protest to say. This is the situation. If you believe the gospel, if you believe these principles, and you want to come together in God's habitation with a like-minded people, you will not be involved in an ecumenical service anywhere. You cannot be, because you have all those gathered there who are against these principles, one way or the other. My friend, that battle is still very much... Uh, a very, very prominent battle, and it must be fought. And we must pay heed to what is happening all around us. I close today with one final thought, the pattern of God's habitation. What patterns or marks these people? Look at verse number 21 again, "...in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth uh, into an holy, unto an holy temple in the Lord." 
in whom you are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. It's one complete statement. And the pattern of God's habitation is signified by those words, a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple in the Lord. What marks the habitation where God dwells? Holiness. Holiness. That's the pattern. Why? Because the one who inhabits it has said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And to that end he purges and he cleanses his people in sanctification and he calls on them to follow the pattern of holy, godly living and thereby enjoy mutual fellowship with each other and enter into hungering and thirsting after God. Ah, oh, my dear friend, the pattern of God's habitation is clear. I trust that all of us will search our lives, our hearts, that all that is unholy we will more and more abandon and we will become more and more like our God. But that pattern will be seen in us. That would require an awful lot more time to develop, but I think that what is said is enough. You look at your own life, not the person beside you. Search your own heart and cry to God like McShane once cried, Lord, make me as holy as it's possible for a sinner saved by grace to be. And if that is our prayer, God will hear it. God will answer it. You see, when I close here with this point, the pattern of God's habitation, sends out a solemn message. How we live determines who we are. If you're God's habitation, this is how you'll be striving to live at least, to be a holy vessel, a holy dwelling place for God. Your whole cry will be, Lord, crucify the, the old nature more and more. Deal with sin in my life, my heart, my thoughts. Make me like Thee. Make me like Thy Son. May that cry go up. Let us bow in prayer. Let's come to an end of our time today. O oh God, our Father, we commend to Thee Thy Word. Our hearing of it, we need Thee to visit us even to prepare us through Thy Word for the Bible conference, to give us solemnity of heart and soul and mind and, and recognize what we're supposed to be and what even a Bible conference is all about, God coming down to dwell with His children for a special time, to visit them, to speak to them, to show them again His truths and warm their hearts and sanctify their lives. O oh Lord, do this. Do this, we pray. Work in us for thy glory.
Work on us every day and conform us to thine image. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who are thine this day and forevermore. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen.